0: Good morning. So this is our seventh and final week of Easter. Uh, it's appropriate, uh, if you were here on Easter, we had, uh, we had three baptisms, and now here we are at the, the bookend of it all with another baptism. And if we're saying any number of things in the baptism, we're saying that we, we die with Christ, and we are raised again anew. And so it's uh, fully appropriate that we have uh, these, these two beautiful bookends uh, sitting with us during this Easter season. Uh, during the season, I like to say, and we'll do it one last time here until next year comes around, uh, he is risen. He is risen. Indeed. He is risen. He is risen. Indeed. He is risen. He is risen. Indeed. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, in the 24th Psalm, you remind us that the earth is yours and everything in it, the world and everyone in it. You have founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in your holy place? God, who can approach your throne? and enter into your presence. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, we come this morning confessing that we do not have clean hands and we do not have pure hearts, O God. But Jesus does. And Jesus, through the cross, has purified our hearts and cleansed our hands. And so with the confidence that we have in Christ's redeeming power, we ask to enter into your presence now to ascend the hill of the Lord, and to stand in your holy place. We ask to receive a word from you this morning. As we do, the psalmist reminds us of what you promise us. We will receive blessing from you, and righteousness from you, the God of our salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek you, who seek the face of God. We seek your face now. Reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I go on vacation, sometimes I come back and I have a slideshow. uh, And we look at the pictures of our trip together. Uh, whether it be like a big trip to Israel, we had a an Israel slideshow a few years late, but it was it was still it still happened, and we we looked back at some of the pictures of uh, our church when we traveled to Israel together a few years ago, uh, or maybe you've been to like uh, to Europe or somewhere grand, right? And and you come back and, and you look at the slideshow and you remember the times that were funny. The times that warmed your heart, the time where tragedy almost struck, but it didn't, and now you have a funny memory from it, right? I kind of hope to do that today, actually. I want to take us back through this journey that we've been on for, for seven weeks straight, right? A journey of hope. And I began the whole thing saying that my hope for us is that by the end of seven weeks of hope that we actually are uh, a more hopeful people as a whole, and that you, the individual sitting in the pew right now, are a more hopeful person. So with that in mind, uh, I just want to cover some of the ground we've covered already, but perhaps you weren't here, perhaps you've forgotten. Uh, These are the highlights of my trip, anyway, and I want to share them with you. We have learned that hope hope is not a desire. It's not a wish. It is an expectation. Maybe firmly yet, hope is a certainty in the Christian sense, in the biblical sense. This is what the authors mean when they use the word hope in our New Testament. Hope isn't, I hope the sun rises tomorrow morning, right? It's the belief that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning, whether we think it will or not. It's an expectation. It's a certainty. And so when we think about Jesus' resurrection, it means many things. But one thing you must not miss is that in that resurrection sits a kind of proof, God doesn't simply say somewhere along the way, hey, trust me, everything's going to work out fine. It'll all be okay in the end. No, 2,000 years ago, he sends his son Jesus in the flesh and blood to die a real death, only to be raised by a real resurrection as the proof or the first fruits of what you and I should expect, of what we know to come. The redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies, the redemption of ultimately everything. Or as uh, John Zizioulas says, that's a, a mouthful, by the way. I had to practice it a few times. He says that the Christian faith has its roots in the future, and its branches are in the present. Right. It's this idea that we know what's planted in the future and we're all waiting for it and the fruit of that is coming to fruition in our lives here and now. That, to me, is the kind of hope we hold on to, especially in times where hope seems thin. The second thing I would say is, as uh, this series has gone on, the connection between hope and faith has come uh, become very clear in my mind. And so if you were to ask the question, how do I become a more hopeful person? The answer, at least one of them, is I must become a more faithful person. I, I need to increase my faith quotient if I'm also to- going to increase my hope quotient, right? And so if I can, uh, uh, through... Faithful practices that are near and dear to our hearts, like you know, prayer and the study of Scripture uh, and, and the communion of the saints gathering together. Uh, if we can do these things with regularity, and and we uh, uh, through the uh, the presence of God in our life uh, increase the kind of faith that we have, that we know we know that we know that we know what is to come is better because Christ has revealed to us in His own resurrection that resurrection is possible. And as I live into that kind of faith, that fills me and you with a certain kind of hope that we cannot have otherwise. And we find a deep meaning in life because of this eternal kind of faith and eternal kind of hope that is sitting waiting for us. The third thing is that if if, uh, hope and faith are integrally connected... I also want to say that hope and love are integrally connected as well. Hope and love are are bound together. And so if you ask the question again, how do I become a more hopeful person? One way to answer this is, well, be careful what you love. Be careful what you love. Take care of what you long for in life, what you desire in life. Above all else, desire one thing. Kierkegaard puts it that purity of heart is to will or desire one thing. I didn't say it in that sermon, but one of the, (laughs) I used to call them B-sides, one of the things that didn't make it in uh, was a quote that I'm going to read now from Revelation chapter 2. And it's about the church in Ephesus back then. And the church in Ephesus, it actually gets a pretty good report uh, to start out until it gets a warning. And so uh, if you recall in the, uh, the beginnings of the book of Revelation, you have this series of letters to churches and, and uh, the author is, is uh, either encouraging them or warning them or some mixture of both. And, and what we find here is, is a mixture. And so in, a, in uh, Revelation chapter two, It goes like this. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I would hope all of these things could be said of us, right? I I would hope someone would come in and be able to say all of these things about South Run Baptist Church Except, he continues, and he says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I pray to God, that does not reflect us. But boy, if it does, this is a good morning for repentance, right? And to remind us that if we are going to be people of hope, we must have that first love squarely in place. And so I would ask you this morning, what do you love? And if you want to be a person of hope, we must order our loves appropriately, Number four, I've got here, we talked uh, one sermon about the role of suffering in hope. The role of suffering. Uh, this was uh, kind of the centerpiece, actually. So there was, this is sermon number four of among seven. It's sitting right in the middle because let's just be honest. it, honest. Uh, suffering often pulls us from our sense of what we hope for. And enough suffering... Over time, it can chip away uh, at our hope, right? But nevertheless, Paul teaches in Romans 5 that suffering leads to endurance, it leads to character, which leads to hope. And I said, it certainly can, but unless we're not careful, it actually doesn't have to, right? That suffering can lead to hope, but it also, if not done well, can lead to despair. And if you remember that morning, Viktor Frankl was somebody I introduced you to, the Jewish psychologist who lived through the Holocaust. And uh, he explains that suffering, well, one, it's, it's, a, uh, it, it's an integral part of, of living the human life. It's going to happen to everyone at some point. And that it becomes an invitation. It's an invitation nobody wants And yet it is an invitation that when it is presented to you, you must accept. And as he says, and he's quoting from scripture, we need to find ourselves worthy of our suffering. Worthy of our suffering. Because we know that Christ is redeeming the world and Christ is drawing us to himself. Number five, we talked about the ways in which us corporately uh, can encourage one another in hope. I think I say this enough, but it's worth saying probably a thousand times that your, your Christian life, you the individual, is frankly not enough, actually. You must be plugged in to some other people, at least one, preferably a few, And most preferably, a church. We come to church not as uh, scattered individuals, right, who just happen to come to the place together uh, once a week or, uh, you know, find ourselves. We come as a church because we want to be united together, to support one another in the times of difficulty and to rejoice with one another in times of joy. And so if we are going to be persons of hope, individuals of hope, We must be part of a group that is a people of hope. And so we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, where the author to the Hebrews tells us that we should not neglect our gathering together, right? And in it, he he calls us to three things. He says, when we gather together, we draw near to God through faith, right? And in this place, that's what we do every Sunday morning. It's certainly what we aim to do, to gather together in the presence of God and to increase that faith quotient, if you will. And two, he says, we hold fast to hope in this place. We are inspired by our fellow Christians, our fellow believers, and this inspires us to hold on to hope, even when in our, only, or our lonely lives, we might be thinking, boy, I feel hopeless today. But this other person in the room they sure are inspiring me this morning, and I'm so glad to gather with them because I find hope because they have hope, right? And then thirdly, the author to the Hebrews in chapter 10 tells us that we should come together to spur each other to love. This is what he says, and, and if you recall, uh, I. I said, uh, the the spurring is like taking a poker and and kind of poking at you and and forcing you into a place where you might feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, you're realizing I need to be a more loving person or or somebody who embraces my neighbor or somebody who reaches out to a friend and and does uh, what the author says are good works, right? And then the Easter egg and all of that was... That what we find in this passage is that the author is calling us to what? To faith and to hope and to love. And all three of these are intertwined together. And then last week, we talked about the story of hope. And the story of hope, well, it goes like this. The garden was uh, the place where we were with God and nothing needed to be redeemed and then the fall happens, and ever since then, we have all been waiting for two hopes to be fulfilled, right? We're waiting for union with God, for that, for that moment where we're back together in a garden way, where we are walking and talking with God, and we are waiting for the redemption of the world. The appropriateness of Easter as a time for hoping should not be lost on you. In all of this, uh, Christ's resurrection stands as the central pillar, or our New Testament authors would call him the cornerstone of hope. He's the cornerstone of what God is doing in the world. Because it is through him that we find the two hope, the two grand hopes coming to fruition. God draws near to us in the person of Christ, and we begin to see the redemption of the world in the person of Christ. And so Jesus' resurrection, this Easter period in which we are sitting, it means any number of things, but it at least means this much. That dead things can come alive. That the worst of the world, even our instruments of torture, Our crosses and our weapons of war will be refashioned by God as instruments of redemption. The old is passing away, and the new has come. Resurrection means that the king is sitting on his throne, and the future has been secured for us. Resurrection means that while we were incapable of drawing near to God, he drew near to us, and he made a way. And resurrection simply means that all things are possible, and good will overtake evil, and light will defeat darkness, and our hope will soon be fulfilled. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, we have all kinds of weirdness in it, right? But we get to the end, and there are these two beautiful chapters that sit at the end, right? And uh, in Revelation chapter 21, what we get is a description. We get a description of uh, the old passing away and the new coming. And so if you'll turn with me to Revelation 21, I just want to read very quickly what we find in this passage. The author says that, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. With the sea being no more, what we find is, is not so much a, uh, something about water in the next life. It's, it's about the place of death and the place of evil being rooted out completely. And uh, if they couldn't, they can't use this metaphor, but being thrown into the sea, right? And it is gone forever. And we are left with only heaven and earth at this point. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And here we have the book of Revelation offering up to us those two hopes that we long for. The hope that God is drawing us into union with himself, and here we see it ever so clearly, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is the grand hope of all history. And my hope is that we are aligning our loves toward that hope. But then there's also this other piece, that all things are being redeemed, that all things, as he says here, are being made new. And that the former ways, things like crying and death and pain, will be wiped away. What we find in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, is a vision of what we all hope for, what we long for. And I pray that we, as a church, we be people who long for that kind of thing. If all of this feels a little too far away, like, well, yeah, that's great. That's then, but this is now. Here's what I would say to you. There's a a quote from a woman named Elizabeth Browning who was a poet like 200 years ago in which she says that earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. (laughs) What's she saying? She's saying that that far-off future that sometimes feels so far away, if we have eyes to see it, is waiting for us in the here and now. And while we don't catch glimpses of it in its fullness, surely we have all had these experiences of utter peace, knowing that God is near. That something is different about the air we're breathing in that moment. And that this is a glimpse, and just a glimpse, into what is yet to come. A day that we all long for. A day where perfect peace will be there. The second thing we can take stock in is that the same Jesus who actually shows up right there in Revelation 21 and he's, he's speaking from the throne, right? He's the same Jesus that 2,000 years ago died and was resurrected from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is seated on the throne then. And what we can take stock in is that right now, as we speak, the same Jesus is on the throne. And that should give us hope that should give us a future. I want to close this way. Ezekiel 36 happens to be uh, one of these chapters that I'm enthralled with. I, I, I love this passage here. And in it, the, uh, the prophet is talking about the, a destroyed Jerusalem and this eventual reconstruction of it all. And then what happens is uh, this idea takes root in a few different ways, one of which is the redemption of the whole world, which is what we're talking about this morning. But another is much more local to you and to me because it can be understood as the redemption of my very own soul and your very own soul. And so if you'll read this together with me, what we'll find is that as we go out into this world and we interact with all these other people we know, our neighbors and our friends and our classmates and our, uh, the people we work with, right? They're looking for the same things that you are looking for in life, whether they realize it or not, whether you realize it or not. And one of them is that peace that passes understanding. One of them is restoration. One of them is unity with a God that they may not even know, right? And you, it turns out, in your restored state are the most living proof that is available to our community that God is real and is able to do miraculous things. And so this is what Ezekiel 36 says. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it. The prophet says, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was, in the sight of all who passed by. And don't miss this, because what the prophet has in view is not just your restoration, as great as that is. He's interested in all those people that pass by you in life that you interact with and who are looking at you, whether you realize it or not, right? And they're taking stock of your life. And if they see that you were a desolation and you have been redeemed and restored, I assure you they're going to take notice. And they're going to ask, what has happened to this person? Who is this person? And it goes on and says, they will say, This land that was desolate, this person who has experienced desolation, who has experienced some kind of tragedy maybe, some kind of awful thing, was invited into suffering. Right? This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Are we fortified? Are we inhabited with the Holy Spirit? And then the nations that are left all around you shall know what? They shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and the ruined peoples, and I have replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. I don't know about you, but I know that I have a testimony of desolation and being rebuilt, not as a self-made man, but as somebody who was recreated by a God who desperately loved me and restored me and put me back on my feet again. I know you have that story too. It's somewhere in there. And I pray, That as we go out as a church body into this world, we don't hide that. We we let other people into that. It might mean being vulnerable about the ways in which uh, you've been a desolation, right? But it also means being vulnerable about the ways in which God has restored your life. I assure you, people need to hear that. They want to hear that. They long to meet people like that. My prayer is that we, South Run Baptist Church, be just that kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this morning we come and we put our hope in you. One more time, we put our hope in you. And we say that we long for union We desire those special moments where we know that you are so close at hand, where we can feel you, where we can feel your joy, where we can almost see you smiling back at us, and we can probably see you smiling back at us in the face of another. God, I pray that we be people of hope, people who have been restored by you, and that we go out into a world who needs hope desperately needs hope, and that we offer the kind of hope that sustains. A hope that is not just ephemeral and fleeting, but a hope that is eternal. A hope that will last a lifetime and into the next. God, we have something to offer our community to the people we love. May we not hold back. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.